how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Early in his studies, Drew Dernovic was bewildered by the many paths to become an artist and the many interpretations of what makes art good or bad. This led him to a more simple path, creating humorous art such as the one-panel cartoon. Recently, Drew's work was featured in Seth Godin's book, The Practice, which showcased his ability to be prolific, eventually becoming one of the most published cartoonists in The New Yorker, even though the majority of his submissions are still often rejected. In this interview, Drew talks about the difference between a Jackson Pollock painting and a cartoon, how to balance creative work and paid work early in a career, how the New Yorker taught him to actually be funny, and how to make your daily work a practice to build a fulfilling career. I was the firstborn child, and, you know, like firstborn ch children, you have to learn to occupy yourself, and that way I did it was by drawing, and I really liked drawing, and I used to draw like dinosaurs and spaceships and all the kids, all the things that, you know, five-year-old kids like to draw. And then um, as I kind of moved through school, I uh, became known for it, I guess, or just, I, I liked, I really liked drawing and painting and I really liked art. And, um, you know, I liked comics and uh, I liked reading cartoons, editorial cartoons, Sunday funnies, all that kind of stuff. And um, so at some point I always knew that because I, I really liked it, I would want to go to school to do it and make a career in it somehow. But also as I went through school and, um, and people uh, tried to educate me about art, I think I became confused and I became frustrated at how the, the kind of further you went into your, and this is even before I had an art career, but I'm just talking about it in college. I think I became bewildered by all the, many different types of art that there were and how many different ways there are to look at it. And I became, I didn't understand how, um, I don't understand how, why the well-known artists were well-known because a lot of, you know, art, art can be interpreted a thousand different ways. And um, 
there's no one way to interpret anything. And, you know, I was looking at professors do these critiques of works that I didn't understand. And they were pointing out uh, aspects of them I didn't understand. And they would like things that I didn't like. And, and uh, they would not like things that I did like. And anyway, at some point, I think I um, rebelled and just wanted to go back to what I considered to be simpler art, cartoons being a simpler art form. And in my, at that time, I don't really think this anymore, but at that time, I assumed that um, you were either good at, like the, the um, you under cartoons were so much easier to understand. The difference at, when I was in college, the difference between, to me, between uh, Jackson Pollock painting and a cartoon was that I think I was frustrated the Pollock painting and not understand it right away. And it may take you months and years to understand it. You may feel something different every time you looked at it and um, you may never really understand it, which, you know, now I understand is the great point about art, but then I just wasn't sure what I was looking at. And I wanted people to, I wanted somebody to tell me like, this is either good or bad. And to me that the cartoon was, was you either was, you just looked at it and you laughed because you just got it right away. And, uh, and, that I think that's what I was looking for. Uh, I want people to look at my art and and, and I wanted to see the reaction. I wanted them to laugh, but mostly I just wanted to know that they understood it, and I didn't want to create these artworks that pe people were asking me what the intent was and the purpose. And um, I didn't at the time know that it was really hard to create humor because I think I think writing good um, cartoons, like writing good humor, is really difficult. Um, I thought it was easy, and I, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely not, but I think that's definitely why I wanted to go into it. And also I'm a people pleaser and, uh, I'm, I would rather have people laughing and, and enjoying something together than, um, creating something that's going to divide people or that people are going to get angry at. So I guess it's both of those things that, that, um, I, I knew I was going to be an artist, but, uh, you know, Painting the Sistine Chapel wasn't for me. I wanted to. I wanted to do stuff that would make people laugh. And even if it was gonna, even if it was gonna be about politics or about current events or about something that was unpleasant, it would still at first make people laugh. Tell me a little about how you how you balance like maybe the the paid work and then some of these because a lot of these you're kind of just pitching ideas. I know you did some some political cartoons, as you said. You worked like engraving gravestones, I think, for a period of time. Like, how did you balance, you know, the day necessities um, with the things you really wanted to do when all of it is kind of creative? Like, how do you kind of balance those two worlds? Uh, yeah, I guess I never thought how, but it was always the case that um, I knew that I would have to do it because I didn't think I'd ever be able to make a living doing. I didn't think I'd ever be able to make a living drawing cartoons, which is what I really wanted to do. So um, I always knew that. It would it would have to be something where I would draw cartoons in my spare time and uh, try and get you know paid as much as I could, but then I would have to have another job. And it just made sense that I would have another job doing something that I like to do, which is drawing. And um, yeah, it's crazy that I was engraving tombstones. It actually, my uncle was in the business and he introduced me to it um, because he kind of imported granite into the country and he said, "Look, there's no." No one wants to be a granite engraver for tombstones, so you can probably make a living doing it. And I didn't want—I didn't certainly want to make a living engraving gravestones, but it was good to be able to 
So it was a good balance for me to, um, because it allowed me to take enough time to draw cartoons. And at, at that time, when I was doing it, I was doing a weekly, uh, I was doing political cartoons for the newspapers outside of Boston. So um, I was working, which was good. I think it's good to work to not just draw cartoons and and uh, stick them in your closet and then go do something else. But it's good to work. You know, it's good to have deadlines and to have editors and things that helps you kind of be. So um, when I originally reached out to you, I read about you in Seth Godin's new book, The Practice, and you had shared an image that there's a very small stack of images and a very large stack, and that was kind of your rejection pile. Is that like, yeah. is it less than one in 100? Like what kind of percent is that that gets, you know, approved? And what kind of inspires you to, to just keep doing those and keep coming up with these ideas? <laughs> well, that's not my... My intent isn't really to do, um, you know, thousands of rejected cartoons, but if I was doing a comic strip that was, um, you know, in a, in a publication where you're doing one a day, I think um, that ratio would be a little, I think the ratio of published material to rejected material would be a lot tighter and be a lot closer. But the New Yorker, when I started doing stuff for the New Yorker magazine, um, it was kind of laid out to me that that's what you have to do, which because Everyone wants to be published in the New Yorker magazine. They get so many, you know, hundreds and thousands of submissions every week. And uh, you may be a cartooning genius, but the numbers are not in your favor. Uh, and if you, you know, you have one or two ideas that you think are hilarious, they may be hilarious, but they're up against, you know, uh, several hundred or maybe a thousand ideas that come in that week. So it may just be that um, you're, they, they buy 15 cartoons that's published and yours is number six. 16 just because they see so many so if you want to have a chance you just have to basically do as many as you can and then so that um you know the numbers the numbers are in your favor and i think also just um so that it becomes a practice and uh so that you don't kind of lean on your own or or become have a uh you don't have a false sense of your own of your own talent or your own funniness, you know, where um, you think of, you have four or five funny ideas and then you can't really think of any more. Uh, they wanted, they, they, the editor at the time wanted you to be like a working cartoonist where he can just, he wants to see people that can, he wanted to see people that can, he could rely on for 10 or 12 funny ideas every week. Um, because the magazine also, um, you may do a cartoon that someone else has done or you know when things enter the public consciousness like GameStop you know it's happening now or TikTok or whatever everyone all all the cartoons out there are thinking oh good something new to draw cartoons about so everyone is kind of mining the same territory in a way so um if you, you just have to keep working at it so that you create a body of work that's uh diverse enough that the editors can have something to choose from and uh, that necessarily means that if you produce 12 cartoons a week, that um, they're, if they buy one, which, you know, they don't usually buy one because they have a lot of cartoons to choose from, but if they buy one, then they're going to uh, reject 11. So you just slowly build up over time this huge pile of uh, rejects. And sometimes we, sometimes I say ideas because sometimes uh, an idea that's rejected just needs to be. Sometimes it's a half-baked idea that will, not that it gets better over time, but maybe you'll, something will happen um, 
that you'll be able to add to this idea or change it or tweak it or change the caption that suddenly becomes funny, suddenly it becomes publishable. So I saved all the rejects because um, you can always go back. It's just like any other art. Like It's like going back to sketches if you're a painter. It's just going back and looking at your earlier material and seeing if there's any way you can change it to make it better. So yeah, I think the reason I had that gigantic the reason I had that big pile was because when I started, it was we would fax them in or send them in. So I did them on paper uh, with the Sharpie and um, would fax in a bunch. And so I saved all of my paper rejects and I actually had put them in, a, in these binders so that even though I saved them all digitally and they're all kind of tagged and categorized digitally, I wanted it, it's more satisfying for me to pull out a folder of ones from you know if I want to pull out pull out what I submitted in 2014 I can just pull up this book and thumb through it and see if there's anything that I want to revisit um, but then at a certain point after after a couple thousand I just ran out of space and it didn't seem like it was uh, serving my purposes especially living in New York and moving all the time to have all these books of rejects <laughs> that I've been carrying around so um, that my kind of internet sale that I did that Seth wrote about was uh, was a way for me for me to get them seen by people but also to kind of get rid of some of them so we kind of talked about you know the bulk of your work let's talk about maybe the the individual ideas and comics um i assume like maybe like uh stand-up comedy a lot of people might see what you do and think it's not as hard as it is something like that it looks like you go through a lot of time you have a notebook it looks like you write in and then it might take five or six images as kind of a evolutionary phase to get to the final. Walk me through anything I'm missing there. What does it look like from like idea to a finished project that you're going to submit? Um, yeah, I think it, there is some overlap with screenwriting uh, in a sense. Um, but I think that the, the um, with stand-up comedy, it's all about uh, connecting with people in the room. You know, it's it's a, it's a relationship there. But with cartoons, obviously, I don't know who's reading it. It happens in a vacuum. So I sit down and um, I basically I sit down and read random assortment of things. I have kind of my favorite publications and websites and things that I read just to find a word, really, or a phrase or an idea, something that catches my, something that's like strikes the chord in my brain. And it could just be like the word yogurt, or it could be an idea of, an idea that's happening, like something on the web that is interesting to me. And then it just, and then you just, I just start free associating um, ideas around that. And I think that what, if, what um, separates cartoonists from other, uh, other types of humor, whether it's be stand-up comedy or a sitcom writer is, is we draw and, and the, and the, it's a visual medium. So you can just sit and play with, um, you can sit and play with images until you find something funny. You know, I would just, um, you can, you can draw a couple sitting on the couch and where you would normally have the TV, you can just draw a refrigerator or you can draw a, um, water cooler, or you can draw a, you know, toaster and you, and you can just keep, um, free associating with images that way until you find something that works for you. Um, I also work the other way where I try and think of a, like think of characters in a scenario. Um, 
that a scenario that strikes me as being funny, like uh, I draw a lot of boardroom cartoons. I don't know why I feel like boardroom situations are funny, but if you think about a boardroom, like a board meeting where people order pizza and then you just start asking questions. Um, it's a sense like you're creating characters that would, that might be characters in a, in a movie or in a play or in a sitcom, but you're, um, you just start writing scenarios about these characters, like who in this board meeting ordered the pizza? Was it the CEO? Was it somebody else? Was it a, was it some, there's somebody new? Are, are there, how many pizza boxes are there on the table? Where are they on the table? What does it mean? Like what, what does it mean that a certain kind of pizza was ordered? And then you just keep, it's just like writing scenarios over and over again until you find something that, that works. So do you do you normally need something grounded so they can because you're you're not doing uh you know a, a syndication that is ongoing where they know the characters right so do you find you that you right. need like a grounded frame to begin with like is there an example of maybe the weirdest one that got accepted you were surprised got accepted well let's say let me back up i think like you know how they say that in in movies there's only like there are only really four or five plots and every screenplay is just a, a, diff, a new way to present these old thoughts. Because all the, you know, like the hero's journey is, every movie is the hero's journey, you know, is the version of the hero's journey. It's just how do we create a new version so that people are, it's like every, every um, screenplay is a Trojan horse where we kind of smuggle in a plot that we've all seen before, but we just don't know that we're watching it because it's satisfying to us. And I think... Cartoons work the same way. I think we're all laughing at the same. Uh, we're all laughing at the same five or six things. You know, we're laughing at when the guy, the person who's um, the person who's at the top of the food chain, you know, gets his comeuppance. We're laughing at things about in relationships that we identify that we've all experienced that we laugh at. You know, like when we do something stupid or when our partner does something annoying that we always comment on. Whatever. There's there are only a few things that we the tickler funny bone and um, drawing cartoons is a way to, again, it's like a Trojan horse where we try and find a new scenario or a new combination of images and of characters and of objects and of, you know, writing captions that um, kind of present old humor or, or familiar humor in a new way so that we don't, we think we're laughing at something new, but we're all really laughing at the same old thing. And um, I don't know if that makes sense, but when I talk about these, scenarios like drawing a couple on a couch looking at a toaster or refrigerator none of those that's kind of an endless game you can play and um and the thing that tells you that it's successful or not is if it hits on something um there's like a an instinct a humor instinct that just tells you like yeah this taps into whatever that kind of archetypal humor is that everyone understands this image taps into that and it's just a matter of writing a caption which uh, you know, which captures the whole thing in full. So it's a complete idea. Has the New Yorker or Esquire or some of your like long-term gigs kind of shaped the way that you think and do cartoons or like what makes you take on something unusual? I saw you just posted a, a design you did for Pat's Blue Ribbon, you can possibility. Like what kind of, how do you kind of keep your creativity expansive if that makes sense? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I do the the magazines, um, like the New Yorker, has shaped how I it has shaped how I think and write and draw humor. Just because, I mean, it, 
of necessity it does just because you want to make sure that you're kind of in line with their guidelines but uh, but also um my my humor actually before before joining the new yorker was kind of terrible it was uh when i first started out it was like bad puns and um and i don't know just a lot of it was like really obvious humor and um a lot of it was uh i i you know the difference between um, old sitcoms where old TV sitcoms where there somebody would say something and they had a laugh track, you know that would signify to the audience like this is where you're supposed to laugh, versus a comedy like like The Office where um, there was no laugh track and it was kind of awkward and it let you you kind of had to figure out on your own what was supposed to be laughed at or not and, and it worked that way and it was kind of more satisfying for it's more satisfying for the viewer if you aren't told where, where and when to laugh. So um, my humor before The New Yorker was more of the, the, the former, where like my jokes were obvious and everyone in my drawings were, all, were yelling. <laughs> I don't know why. Even people that were standing next to each other, like a couple in bed were yelling at each other. Because I think I thought that that's how you made stuff funny, was if people looked a little bit ridiculous or looked like they you know, doing something that was out of their environment. And um, sometimes when I go back and look at the early stuff I did, I think, why did I think that, why did I think that not drawing somebody using a normal speaking voice was funny, that they always look like they had to be shouting all the time. So, um, but yeah, it has, but doing things like the Path to Ribbon is, in one sense, it's fun just to do something for a different market that's, you know, it's like artistic cross training, just working different muscles. But I also think it helps to kind of get out of a rut. Um, uh, whenever people who are aspiring cartoonists ask me what um, advice I would give them for being a New Yorker cartoonist, I, I tell them, don't think about being a New Yorker cartoonist. Think about being your own. Um, don't think about what a New Yorker reader is going to look at and laugh at. Um, you know, do work in your own voice because what they want is, and I think what, what people want in general is someone who's authentically funny, who works in their own voice, and then they were, they're going to publish that, but you're not trying to, Right, quote unquote, New Yorker cartoons. Because once you once you start thinking about that exclusively, then it, that puts you in a rut where you're kind of limiting the kind of humor that you can come up with. And it's good to kind of start broad and do what what you think is funny for you, and then and then adjust it later on if you have to for wherever it's going to get published. But um, it's it's both you know it's it's bad in that way too. Uh, always be thinking of a target where your, your humor is going to be because it, it is limiting in a way. Do you have any other advice like that? Like, let's say if there was a new, you know, a fictional publication coming out and there was maybe six magazines you could look at and, and see what the style is. Any other piece of advice like that for someone who wants to experiment pitching cartoons or even pitching like writing stories, that kind of thing? Yeah. In addition to being authentic, I think the one piece of advice is, is to just, which again is like really cliche and and obvious, but it's just to work at it. Um, one thing that um, I've seen when I when you know people show me their work or aspiring cartoonists show me their work is uh, I feel like you can always tell the difference between somebody who's really chewed on an idea and kind of worked at it and struggled with it versus somebody who's um, uh, I don't want to put this in a really pejorative way, but somebody who thinks that they're funny and kind of relies and relies on the fact that they think they're funny without really without pushing it. Like, um, 
you know, we all carry around notebooks. I carry on a notebook and sketchbook with me and a lot of, and I know a lot of cartoonists do. And there's a difference between if you see something, see something funny or you see an idea when you're walking down the street um, that strikes your, your funny bone and then you write it down and maybe you add something to it or change it, but you just kind of write it down and move on and think like, oh, I'm, I've really done something. But to me, um, every idea can be pushed in, you know, can be pushed in a lot of different directions and, and um, it's uncomfortable and it, it sucks in a way. And it's hard because um, like I said before, when, when something enters the, an idea enters the public consciousness, like just say the GameStop, this whole GameStop fiasco, that's a new thing. Uh, whatever ideas I think about in terms of cartoons um, that are pertaining to that topic, probably the first five or six things I think of are going to be things that everyone else has thought of. And uh, yes, maybe I, I might have, maybe my first instinct about that idea, about how I'm going to capture that idea is something which is universal and which is everyone will recognize and which is funny and I don't need to go any further, but chances are it's not. And, and to really play with that and manipulate it and, and go do something else and come back and think about it in a way that, that you're really kind of working with idea and, and getting everything out of it that you can. I think that's where the gold is. And eventually, you know, and I don't know how it happens, but eventually once you think about something for a while, once I think about something for a while and come to the end of my frustration, a lot of times just a, a, a crazy funny idea will pop into my head for no reason other than the fact that I just was thinking about it for two hours and couldn't come up with anything. And then that seems to be how it works is there's this relationship between how much time you put into doing it and, and the results that's it's not always kind of tangible, but it shows that, but you can tell, you can tell the work of people who really put the time in versus people who, who um, are doing it kind of as a hobby, but you know, not really putting a lot of time into it. So now you've got some books listed on your website. Tell me a little bit about the, the books you've kind of come out with or helped illustrate. And then if you have any like different approach to how you work on something that's like a bigger project, like a book, as opposed to like a single frame comic. Sure. Um, because I like drawing, I always knew that I would want to publish a book. And um, so I worked on, man, I have so many different proposals for graphic novels and kids books and things. And then finally one of them, uh, I sold one of them a couple of years ago, I did a picture book and then I did a, um, I just published my first middle grade kids book last September. And um, it's, it's a completely different, even though a cartoon is a narrative, um, a cartoon is a narrative that is, could do the narrative that you don't have to continue into the next frame. Like um, a cartoon is a joke that just happens to have characters in it, but a book is a narrative that, um, has characters and, you know, may or may not happen to have jokes in it. And so it's a lot for me, writing based on um, characters was a lot harder because when you write a cartoon, you kind of, in a sense, make you, you, you include in the cartoon only what's funny for that scene. And, you know, you don't have to think about the scene before it or the scene after it really, but in a, in a book, you have to think about the characters holistically and um, you can't kind of shipwreck the characters in the book on on uh, a few a few cheap jokes if that makes any sense so it was hard, so because i thought of my first um the middle grade book that i wrote that came out was about a kid who likes kind of like myself who likes to draw but in this book this kid liked drawing all over he had no boundaries in terms of what he liked to draw on he would 
draw on the bathroom stalls and on his desk and on the walls and cafeteria trays. He just had, he would draw over anything and everything. And um, that nobody could get him to stop. And he was perennially in trouble at school. And then this kind of caper happens and he becomes the, the school police sketch artist. And um, there are lots of funny visual scenarios that I had thought of with, you know, a kid drawing on things. And some of them were things that I had done, but other ones were, were things I thought were funny. But in order to construct a story out of that, you really have to have solid characters and multiple characters. And and um, uh, I'm not a I'm not any sense a professional at it, but uh, it was really fun to do and more satisfying, you know, than or just as satisfying as writing cartoons, I guess, but in a different way but it's a completely different way to work. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.